Okay, I'll tell my father that you're coming with us tomorrow. Where are we going? Nilbog, a wonderful half-empty town. Oh, Elliot, it will be wonderful. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And it's the exclusive home of the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan, call you. Uh, listen, I thought my acute paranoia syndrome would really help me now that I've made detective. But now I'm starting to question myself. Thank you very much. Bye. Yeah, I had to uh, kind of look that up. Acute paranoia. I didn't even know what that means. But uh, I don't know what's funnier. Acute par- uh, paranoia or the thought of Detective Duff McKagan. <laughs> or probably both. Uh, thanks to Duff for delivering the laughs or the groans, as always. This is the third year of the Duff McKagan joke of the week. He hasn't missed a Friday yet since August of 2017. Think about that. Man, that's amazing. It's actually the fourth year. We're going into the fourth year here. But it's always a lot of laughs with Duff, and there's always a lot of laughs with the Winnipeggers because uh, coming up, I got Dave Spivak and Ribo. Uh, we're going to take a Valentine's Day trivia quiz with a very special surprise guest helping us out with that. And there will be an actual prize awarded to the winner. I know last time Dave won the ACDC prize of Power Up when we did the ACDC quiz. So I better win this week. But speaking of Dave and the Winnipeggers, we released a new episode last night on my Facebook page and YouTube channel. We all took a personality test. Yes, an online personality test. Two of us had very similar results, which makes me question the validity of the test. It was way too long as well. We ended up just brushing through it, but lots of laughs. So come check out one of the uh, most up-and-coming shows on Facebook and YouTube. The Winnipeggers were shopping it around to some big-time producers as well. So hopefully we're going to go to the toppermost of the poppermost. All right, coming up on Talk is Jericho very soon. Today is the best, worst movies ever. We're talking about Troll 2, and we're talking about The Room. And I've got Greg Sestero from The Room and George Hardy from Trolls 2, two of the best, worst movies of all time. I'm I'm not insulting either one of them by saying that. They know that. And Travis Ayers, who produced the new movie Cyst, was stars uh, both. It stars both Greg Sestero and George Hardy together. What a dream team of uh, bad movies, if you will. He joins the conversation as well. So Greg and George are going to share some great stories about the making of both films, how they each got involved, the shoestring budgets they had to deal with, the surprise cult followings both movies developed in the 20-plus years since they've been released. Uh, And those cult followings are mostly due to the documentary about Troll 2 called The Best Worst Movie and the film The Disaster Artist, which tells the story of the making of The Room and stars James Franco, which is hilarious. So before we get to the worst movie ever with George Hardy, Greg Sestero, and Travis Ayers, I have to welcome some very special guests to talk as Jericho, my uh, cohorts in the Winnipeggers, uh, Ribo and, and, and Dave Spivak, and the most, hey, hey, hated, uh. the most hated jeweler in America, Stephen Singer from Stephen Singer Jewelers, which is great to have you back, Stephen. Uh, How you doing, guys? It's it's great. We we're actually it's funny because you were on. It seems like it was only a few months ago, but it was probably a year ago, uh, pre pandemic. But yet uh, you're back and and doing better than ever. Yeah, before we were wearing spacesuits when we were exactly. life was normal. That should be. <laughs> you should sell a Steven Singer bejeweled uh, masks. I'm sure you probably already we do. We do. We actually we actually have 
Stephen Singer masks that say, uh, <laughs> I hate wearing masks. Triple stitching. <laughs> High quality. There you go. I hate masks. I hate masks. Nice. <laughs> Stephen Singer and Jewelers. <laughs> so, Steve, what, what's been going on with you uh, over the last few months? Well, as you just mentioned, the world has gone crazy and um, this crazy virus and the pandemic and all this nutty things that's happened in the last year. So um, we, by accident, we just bumbled into something and we started to do it. And I'd like to tell you guys and that what we're doing is a win-win, win-win. I call it four wins. You buy a gift from us, any gift for Valentine's Day or for any holiday for that matter, but you buy it and we are going to take a portion of that sale and all over the country, we've done hundreds of these already and we fed thousands of frontline heroes. We're going to get a local restaurant to cater so we can help local restaurants that are struggling that, you know, can't be open necessarily for regular business. They feed the whole hospital. So we go into a hospital all over the country and we feed all the frontline workers, the doctors, the nurses, the technicians, the people at the front desk, everybody that works in the hospital, we feed them. And I'm just pleased as punch it. I mean, the reception and, and just to thank these people. We've gotten so many letters and email cards and texts. So it's a small little hug and it's a nice way to do it. So you can reward these frontline heroes. We can help out some local businesses, some restaurants. You can get a great gift. And then the person that gets it gets a great gift and everybody feels good. And it mentions it in the little thank you we send out to everybody that gets or receives a gift. That's so great, Stephen. That's one of the things about you and your store and, and your online presence of always kind of giving, uh, especially during this time. Uh, so we appreciate you for that. And we thank you for that. And one of the other reasons why we want to have you on the show today is because uh, Valentine's Day is right around the corner. Sure is. Yeah. And, and – <laughs> No surprise, none of us have gifts for our uh, for our special lady friends. Guys are the dumbest thing. They they get on the way home from work on the thirteenth. Like, oh yeah, it's Valentine's Day. It's like oh, Christmas is December twenty fifth this year. Guys are just stupid. Girls, women, they get it way weeks in advance. They have everything done, set up. Guys are just so dumb. And I'm a guy, I know, well, and I screw it up all the time. So we try to make it easy. We pull your ass out of the fire with very fast and free shipping and we'll take care of everything for you. If you are a dumb guy, like the four of us. Well, well, and thank you. Thank you for mentioning it because I forgot all about Valentine's there day until just right now, just until you said it. <laughs> yeah. We're actually the most hated actually. There you go. <laughs> it's the truth. If you're talking about dumb guys, you have got three of the best here. Uh, and that's why we wanted you on Steven, because you're going to help out uh, one of us. Uh, by giving us a chance to win one of these brand new deep navy blue sparkling 24 karat gold dip twinkle twinkle roses. And these are great, too, because I got one last year for my wife. Uh, and you change the color. Gold right. and Every green. year we have a different color. But this one is Twinkle Twinkle, which is like twinkle, uh, twinkle. It's a deep navy blue with little sparkles in it that mimics the night sky. Ooh, nice. That's, rom that's romantic, Dave. It is. Uh, yes. Romance is alive here tonight. I might actually buy one for you guys. <laughs> uh, we, we, we would expect that. <laughs> we will make sure whoever wins gets the rose. And for the two of us who don't win today, we can still go to IHateStevenSinger.com and order one of the new Twinkle Twinkle Roses. But let me tell you guys how this little contest is going to work. Steven has some Valentine's Day related trivia questions for the three of us. And he's going to ask each of us individually a question. If we get it right, we get a point. Um, and whoever has the most points when the game is over wins the Twinkle Twinkle Rose. 
So this is good. We, we, this is kind of we we did this a few months ago, Stephen, with the new ACDC record. Cool. We kept track. I think Dave won that one, but uh, I'm I'm I up did, for yeah. this one. I think I'm going to win right. this one. Well, the, the questions aren't too hard, but I'll teach you guys a little bit about love today. Teach <laughs> us about love. I, I think we, I think we can do this. Give us round one, Stephen. All right, here we go. Round one. All right, Chris. Um, how about Ribo? We'll give you the first question. What's the most popular flower for Valentine's Day? Oh, that'd have to be a red rose. There you go. That's it. Ding, ding, ding. It's a oh. red rose, which is the symbol of love and affection. And I would have taken Stephen Singer's famous 24 karat roses, too. Uh, either one, but that's it. You get that's a great one. Uh, Dave, which jeweler uh, makes the 24 karat gold dip roses? Now, if you don't get this right, this is going to be uh, a Carol Channing's in People's <laughs> Jewelers. No, that would be uh, Stephen Stephen Singer's Jewelers. There Stephen Singer. Go. All right, that's a that's Good a given. All right, um, Chris. According to Time Magazine, who is the mother of the American Valentine? Who invented it? Um, Kathy Valentine of the Go Go's. That's a good answer. <laughs> uh, Esther Holland, who started well, selling Valentine's Day card in eighteen fifty. <laughs> How do I get that one? These guys oh. get Steven Singer Jewelers and Red Rose. You're the host, man. You're the you're the big you're the big guy. <laughs> I, I knew that one, man. I knew everything in the 1800s. I got this, knowledge. What of. are you telling me? Carol Channing Jewelers. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> she used to do the commercials for Peoples. <laughs> All right. What's the next one? All right, Dave. Uh, on Valentine's Day. This is round two. 1967 a long time ago valentine's day 1967 the late great aretha franklin recorded what song respect that's it ding 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 ding, ding, yeah, ding i would have never gotten that no that's, i would have got that's, that that's a good pull that's a good pull all right chris <laughs> what year oh this is tough what year were the candy hearts invented you know little candy hearts that say like you give each other in sixth grade you give like little says love yep. or be mine uh, i'll give you a couple of hints Okay. It was either 1856, 1866, or 1876. And this, I would have no idea. I'm going to say uh, 1876, widely known as the year of love. There you go. Well, you're very close, but it was 1866. <laughs> 18, 1876, the summer of love. You're getting all the difficult answers, all the difficult questions. But listen, that's the way they pull. All right. Ribo, what is, which Roman goddess was Cupid's mother? Oof. Um, I'm going to say Carol Channing, I think. There was. you go. There you go. That's close. <laughs> but the, the right answer is Venus. <laughs> oh, All right. Let's go. Uh, round three. Chris, yeah. according to the National Convectioners Association, what percentage believe that Valentine's Day candy should be either red or pink in color? And I'll give you a couple of multiple choice. Is it uh, a, 45%, B, 55%, or C, 65%. I'm going to say the majority would say that. So say 65%. Ding, 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 ding. Right. Yes. That is exactly right. So 65%. good. Good pull. Very nice. Very, very Congrats. nice. Right. We're plugging along here. Okay. Uh, Ribo, according to the National Retail Federation, what percentage of Americans buy Valentine's Day gifts for their pets? And I'll give you a multiple oh, choice as well. Is it yes, A, 17%, please. B, 27%, or C, 37%? See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go 17%. Who would do that? 
Well, there you go. Well, Americans are wacky. 27% of spent money wow. on And for a bonus, um, you have any guess of how much it was? I'll give you a bonus add-on. I don't know, but when I had my answer, uh, my cat was looking at me kind of funny. There you go. Well, $1.7 billion. You hear that? $1.7 with a B. $1.7 oh billion gosh. on Pets Valentine's Day gifts. You never bought Rusty a, a, a present for Valentine's Day, Ribo? <laughs> no, Christmas presents. You know, he'd get the wrappers and the box and that kind of <laughs> yeah, stuff. And he was it, really right? happy with that. All right, here you go. Dave, this is a good question. According to the Society of American Florists, what percentage of women send themselves send themselves a bouquet on Valentine's Day? Is it A, 5%, B, 15%, or C, 25%? I'm depressed now. Um, I will, I'll give that a 15. I'll go in the middle. 15, 15 is exactly 15 right. Points. 15 points. Wow. 15% send themselves their own Valentine's Day? Yeah. Okay, that's crazy. I would have never guessed that. All right. Yeah. So I have to get the total for the three rounds and see where we stand here and see if we're going to have a <laughs> lightning round. And um, if we do, I have some lightning round questions for you experts. Oh, yeah. You got you got Stacy uh, coming from above. Dave has three. Ribo has one. Chris has one going into the lightning <laughs> round. So Dave is in the lead. Again? All right. I, if only I could win in real life. Okay, let's go. All right. He's the expert on the show. So I'm going, uh, so now we're going to go to the lightning round. I'm going to name one half of a famous music couple. Yes. And then you have to name the other okay, part. Okay, we got this one. So we'll start with the Ribo, all right? Courtney Love and? Kurt Cobain. That's it. Woo! All right, Dave, John Lennon and? Yoko Ono. You got it. You got it. Chris? Um, more current, Blake Sheldon and um, Blake Sheldon and uh, 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 Gwen Stefani. No doubt, you got that right. You got it. All right, nice. You got it. All right, everybody got that right. So the total is from my voice in my ear from Stacy is Dave wins with four, rivaling <laughs> Chris for second with three. Jeez, Louise, he can put that that uh, Twinkle Twinkle Rose next to his copy of Power Up. By ACDC that he won in the last uh, contest. Keep them coming. All right. Well, <laughs> listen, you know, there's no losers here on Talk is Jericho. So we're going to send everybody some roses and some Valentine's Day gifts to make you guys look good. Oh, that's And so nice. then to the lovely Stacy, we're going to send her some stuff and we're going to send you our brand new displays and lovely rose scent that goes with it. So you can build a little bouquet. That's right. You can get the new Steven Singer Deep Navy Blue Sparkling 24 Karat Gold Dipped Twinkle Twinkle Rose. Go to IHateStevenSinger.com to order one. And the good news is you still have time to get it for Valentine's Day. Shipping is free, and you get the love note, like Steven says. So thank you, Steven Singer. And have the lifetime guarantee. Lifetime guarantee. Like you said, <laughs> roses, uh, after a wow. week, you throw them away. They're done. That's it. This is a real rose. People always ask. It's a real rose dipped in 24-karat gold and preserved forever. So you get credit for it forever. Forever and ever. So thank you. Thank you, nice. Stephen, uh, for, for doing this and for joining us. Uh, no, uh, Thanks for having me on. And you made me a hero with my nephew. Man, oh, man, I told him who I'm going to be on with. You made, Before I was a loser. Now I'm a superstar <laughs> because I was on with you. So thanks a lot. You gave me some street cred. I appreciate it. Thank you, Stephen. And uh, thanks, guys. Speaking of losers, Ribo and I will uh, go to the gas station to buy some presents for our wives while Dave <laughs> has the brand new Twinkle Twinkle Rose to uh, give to his. So 
Thank you, Stephen. Just have them just have them send their own to themselves. Five percent. Get them in that five percent or whatever it was. Thanks, Stephen. Nice meeting you. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Take care, guys. Thanks. All right. Thanks again to Stephen Singer of Stephen Singer Jewelers. Even though I think his Valentine's Day trivia quiz was rigged in Dave's favor, whatever. But let's get on with it. It's the best worst movie: The Room versus Troll Two with Greg Sestero, George Hardy, and Travis Ayers. Right now on Talk Is Jericho. <laughs> All right, so this is going to be a fun show today because two of, of my favorite movies are The Room and Troll 2, and we have kind of an all-star lineup today with, with Greg Sestero and George Hardy, uh, who starred in those respective movies, and then Travis Ayers, who is the producer of the new movie uh, Sist, starring Greg and George. So as much as I'm excited about Talk is Jericho having this all-star lineup, Tell us about how you got Greg and George involved for your film, Travis, because that's definitely a, an all-star lineup, too, when it comes to a certain type of movie, if, if, if nothing else. Yeah, so I had actually met George through uh, his movie that came out a couple years ago called Texas Cotton. Um, I was introduced to him by the director, Tyler Russell, and I ended up coming on doing the marketing, theatrical booking, and PR for the film. So basically since then, I've been working with George nonstop for three years. And shortly after I met George, uh, I met Greg. Uh, I was doing theatrical booking for a theater here in Pittsburgh. And I actually just connected with them and, you know, had them come to the theater, do an in-person introduction. And from there, we traveled to Cleveland together. We've gone to Montana together. So had a good reputation or good relationship with the both of them. And when we were in pre-production for Assist last August, you know, we had already locked George as the main guy, Dr. Guy, and it only made sense to bring the bad movie icons together. So I actually, you know, reached out to Greg, asked him if he wanted to play the character of Bill. And I mean, the rest is history. And it was actually cool. So the first time uh, when Greg arrived to set, it was actually the first time that Greg and George had met in person. And that was a, you know, one of a kind of experience. It's interesting too because when when you say bad movie icons, that's not that's not a, a cut down because obviously both George and Greg, uh, Greg specifically has a very long resume uh, in the movies, and George has, has made a lot a lot of films too. But actually, you're still a, a practicing dentist as well, right, George? That's right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I I just uh, finished up this morning. And uh, <laughs> cut it off early for you today. How about that, Chris? <laughs> Thanks, man. Did that last filling and told the guy to hit the road, you got to do a podcast. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> with you too. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but but how, is, how is it for you guys? And Greg, I'll start with you. When you're talking about, you know, this, this, the room has become iconic. So to be associated with it, it's probably helped your career, even though at the time when you first saw it and it came out, you probably thought, oh, no. What have I done? <laughs> yeah, the, well, the premiere was uh, was everything you'd expect. I mean, you had people laughing when like the logos came on, so I knew it was going to be kind of rough. I like I went into the lobby when the room was premiering, and I like five minutes in, I didn't want to see my sex scene, and so these people started walking out from the audience, and one guy looked at his friend and said, "I'll never get hard again." Um, so. <laughs> So at that point, I knew this movie had it had potential, but it wasn't until like years later that people started showing up and just loving this movie. And, and I really thought, hey, that's what everybody really hopes for to make a movie that people love. 
I mean, this one was kind of twisted because they would interact with it and make fun of it. But at the end of the day, they loved it. And I thought, you know, this isn't a movie that's probably going to get you acting work if you show it to anybody. But I knew the story behind this movie, the experience I had with Tommy, meeting in an acting class, sharing that dream. I said, this would make a great book. This would make a great, you know, movie in itself. And so that's when I started writing The Disaster Artist, was, was trying to tell the story about the making of this bad movie and have that turn into something that's actually good. Um, because when you see The Room, it's sort of like a movie that an alien made after having movies explained to him and, and went out and, and it's like so different, it's not really accessible. And I thought telling the story about these two people that wanted to follow their dream was something human that I think a lot of people could relate to. And how about you, George, when you're talking about, the, Greg talked about the premiere of Troll 2, what kind of reactions did you get when, when the movie first came out? Because that was your first film, correct? Right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I was just a stumble upon. Yeah. It, I mean, you know, when I, I like, like Travis said, when Greg and I met, we had, we had so much to resonate about because uh, for me, being not the actor, uh, I've, you know, I've done a few little high school plays and was a college cheerleader at Auburn, but <laughs> not, not anything that I was uh, in, in front of the camera for, especially that length of time. It was made in 1989. And, uh, like Greg, I didn't even watch the film until 2006 in New York City at a, at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in its entirety because, like him, I was I, for me I was totally embarrassed and uh, you know the first five minutes I went oh my gosh what you know what's happened here and so what happens I made the film in '89 in Salt Lake City and then moved back to Alabama where I'm at now I'm in Auburn right now I live on Lake Martin close to like uh, real close to here but so when I first saw the film like I said we, most all the cast members ran from it until 2006 I get a phone call from a, a journalist from Furman I think it was Furman University he's writing a, a radio doc he was doing a radio documentary on the worst movies ever made and he said can I interview you I said why he says well because it's number one worst film on IMDB right now and so I said you gotta be kidding so I go to IMDB and I didn't even know what that band at the time, Chris, and because uh, I'm back practicing dentistry in Alabama, raising a family and all that. And uh, <laughs> I scrolled to the bottom of the page, and I kept on scrolling down at the bottom and looked at the reviews. And, and at the very bottom of the screen, it was April the 13th, 2006, and it said, Troll 2 Cast Reunion, first ever screening in the United States. So I, it says April the 15th. I, I, I spent 750 bucks, flew out to Salt Lake, went into a room and got tackled by by you know troll two fans i had no idea there was an underground cult around this thing which he explained to me about his radio documentary that he was doing so it's kind of this disbelief thing but then i met all the cast members i hadn't seen in 17 years now it's been 30 years since troll two's been made and and i met my on-screen son and i said why don't we do a documentary around it and so we did and so like greg he wrote a book we made a documentary called best worst movie which which uh was an award-winning uh, yeah. film. So, uh, yeah. Well, that's the thing that's so cool about about these movies is that Greg mentioned The Disaster Artist, which obviously was, was a great movie with James Franco and, and Dave Franco. And then, George, you mentioned Best Worst Movie, which is probably one of the best documentaries that I've seen. And why I say that is because you can watch Best Worst and not have any knowledge of what troll two is or even really care about horror movies or whatever. It's just such an interesting 
story. So you guys were both able to kind of create these great pieces of work to shine a positive light on these movies uh, that had such a negative beginning uh, to start out with. Now, Travis, are you were you fans of both these movies, and how did you come up with the idea of getting this dream team of George and Greg together? So, in all honesty, I hadn't seen. So, I think I saw Troll Two first, and then I saw The Room shortly after. Uh, but much like George, I actually didn't see either movie until the late 2000s. So, like 2008, 2009, somewhere in there, I was in film school, and we did like a private screening back to back of both movies. So yeah, I didn't see it either one until later in life. And then when I went into like theatrical booking, I was able to see, I mean, anytime any independent theater books The Room or Troll 2, it's always like an immediate sellout. And especially with The Room, because there's always an interactive experience when you go see The Room in a movie theater, whether it's, you know, throwing forks or throwing footballs at the screen. Um, (laughs) It's a real like immersive experience. So I always just had so much fun. And then, you know, yeah, I'd started a friendship with George. And every time I would talk to George about the room, he's like, yeah, you know, I met Tommy in the past, but I've never met Greg. So I think when Greg and I were going to Cleveland one time, um, I was just like, Greg, do you, you know, you wanted me to get George on the phone? So I called George, got him on the phone and, you know, they chatted for five to 10 minutes. And I could tell that there was like a relationship that needed to happen just based on that quick phone call. And yeah, sure enough, when we started going in production for the movie, I just had to have the two in there. And then another nice little addition, we actually threw in uh, Darren Ewing, who plays George's assistant in the movie. And he is the, you know, the, Oh my God guy from troll two. So there's, (laughs) there's a whole like, you know, sis has a really like cult like atmosphere, but yeah, like I said, when those two first met Greg and George, I mean, it was, you know, it's a one of a kind thing. And it was such a cool experience just to see those two talk. And I mean, these guys talk for hours. They relate together on everything. It just like I said, it was a really cool experience to see them come together. Let's go back and hear how Greg became involved with The Room and how George got the part in Troll 2. And we'll do that after I thank Geico for supporting Talk is Jericho. I know all you guys listening either own or rent your own homes. I know it's hard work, but you know what's easy is bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renters insurance along with your auto policy. And it's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. All right, Greg, how did you get involved with The Room? When were you brought in? And did you know the script... uh, was absolutely awful right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, I was, so I was taking an acting class in um, San Francisco. I was like 19 and I went into this class and there was this guy who looked like Jack Sparrow, um, (laughs) you know, after doing a little bit of cocaine. And so he went up there and he performed this sonnet that was just so unreal. And everyone in the class was horrified and they're like, what is this? And I I was fascinated. I thought like at that point in my life, I wanted to see something raw and intense and different. And that's what this guy was. And so I went up to him and I was like, Hey man, do you want to do a scene together? And he looked at me like I was crazy. So, uh, and it was Tommy. And so we ended up becoming friends through, we were both loners in our own lives. We both like, you know, we're going through a transitional period 
And so we became friends and, 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 you know, we, I moved to LA, I was renting his apartment and then he ultimately was like, you know, no, nobody appreciate me. People don't, people don't think I'm, I look like Brando. I can be Brando. Uh, and so he, he, he just, he just decided, you know what? I'm, I'm an independent, successful retail guy who has the money to make my own movie my way. And I want you to star in it. And I was like, oh, Lord. Because uh, I'd been auditioning for things. I'd done a few things. And I knew this, you know, this movie probably had no shot at any sort of success. It's written by one man who wants to star in it. He wants to play this young 25-year-old guy. He looks like a vampire, but he's the leading man. And so he wrote the script. And honestly, the, the original draft of The Room was one of the funniest things I've ever read. Like, I've done a few events where we read the original script mm -hmm. with audience members. And it, it's, it's just like, it's pure comedy. But again, he meant for this to be a drama. So when he said, I want you to play the lead role of Mark, I was like, you know what? I'll help you make this movie, but I don't think I'm right for it. And so that's how it started out. We ended up cast trying to cast the movie. We found the whole cast. Everybody was ready to go. And then the night before filming, He's like, look, if you don't make this movie, it will be biggest mistake of your entire life. You will miss the boat. And I'm like, but we already have another guy playing Mark. He's like, no, you know what we do? He was, he was shooting the movie on film and HD, two cameras side by side, never been done before, beyond pointless. But anyway, he, uh, he's like, we'll roll film on you and we'll roll digital on the other Mark, shoot the scenes twice and just delete the digital. And I'm like, dude, this is the worst plan ever. So going into making the room, I, I, you know, didn't think anybody would ever see it. And really it was like the night before filming that I was like, you know what, I guess I'm going to be on set all day helping may as well do it. Nobody's going to see this movie. So for me, it's probably like 17 years later that people still love this movie. It goes to show anything's possible because I didn't expect anything from it. And I, I, I didn't think anybody would ever see it, let alone was it good or bad. So it just goes to show when you go out to do something creative, you know, the sky's the limit because we have no idea how it's going to be received. You just never know what's going to connect with people. So, George, tell us about your, your how you got the, the gig with Troll 2. I know. Like Greg, I was taking a few fun acting classes in Salt Lake City. And one of the people in my aerobics class says, why don't you come and uh, one of my students come and take some acting classes. So I took lessons from a lady named Lillian Chauvin. She was uh, Raquel Welch's coach and so, several other celebrities out in Los Angeles. She flew up to Salt Lake and we do little scenarios. And so uh, one day uh, I got a phone call that there was an audition up in Park City. And so after my practice, after I practiced, was practicing dentistry, I went up to Park City and auditioned. I walked in this smoke filled room of nine Italians and no one spoke English and uh, the room, I couldn't even see the director. Mind you, I'm in Utah, right? Nobody smokes at all, <laughs> but there's so much cigarette smoke in the room and they co they read me, a, a, give me a cold script to read. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I like your energy. I like your energy he says to me. And then the next day, you know, I, I, you get the part for the, the lead as far as the dad goes. And I went, Oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. So, so, uh, like Greg, you know, I would say, you know, if you're going to ask which one's the Holy grail of both of them, I'd say our, maybe, maybe there was some cynicism or something was cynical about the room. Ours is so innocent because really what we were trying to do were all non-actors in Utah 
I got paid a hundred dollars a day for 13 days. And you know, we were just trying, we were, we were all trying to make a really good movie, but we couldn't, we couldn't understand the script. And so uh, we were trying to decipher what it meant. And, you know, the last, uh, the last scene in the movie is shot the first day. It was so discombobulated. I had no idea what I was doing. There was no direction. We were just, <laughs> we were just winging it. And like Greg, you know, when, when we, um, yeah, I don't know. There's so many, so many similar stories here when I hear him talk about all this and just the bizarre sets. And we had still pizza. I remember for two or three days, we had pizza on the third or fourth day, it's the same pizza from the first but anyway so we had this relationship that we had built with a lot of Italians we had translators there with us and we just made this thing and I had no idea I had no idea really Chris what was going on until about day four or five and I'm sitting at a table in a seance and I look down and there's green icing on corn on the cob and there, and there's everything's green you know if you watch Troll 2 you guys there there's no trolls in Troll 2 they're, they're goblins and they're disguised as human. And if they eat us, we'll, we'll turn into uh, to plant. We'll, no, if we eat any of their food, we'll turn into plants. They're vegetarian goblins and then they'll eat us. So the whole attempt is trying to get us to eat their food. So anyway, <laughs> bizarre story, right? And so here we are in these, you know, phenomenal, it, it, you know, it's just happenstance that Greg and I, that this happened to us. And now here we are, you know. For me, 30 years later, you know, talking to you on uh, uh, one of the best podcasts in the world, you know. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. And, and you see this in Best Worst Movie, the director, uh, Claudio Fregasso and uh, and Tommy Wiseau kind of in interviews. They get kind of angry when people refer to this as a bad movie. Like they still and, and maybe maybe Tommy's changed, Greg, you can speak on that. But I know in the documentary, like when people infer to Claudio, the director that this movie sucks he's yeah. he's mad he's like no it doesn't suck it's good it's great art or whatever he says yeah does tommy still feel the same way greg i think tommy still believes you know it's a great movie i mm. mean i still think he you know people say how does it feel it's the worst movie ever he's like you know the room can be whatever you like it can be happy place <laughs> it can be bad place but i don't believe it's a bad movie i mean he justifies <laughs> that's great all, man by the way the, it's perfect yeah all the just all the decisions he made, like, for example, we were making Disaster. I was like, one of James Franco's favorite stories about the set. I was telling him, Tommy built a $6,000 private bathroom on the set, like, with a curtain. And, and he's like, why? How? Like, there's a bathroom, like, 75 feet away inside. And he's like, because King has to have his own quarters. Hmm. And we're just like... He never used the bathroom, but he saw it as that, like, I need my space. And he totally sees it his way. Like, he doesn't think, like, oh, I'll go back on that and defend it. So he <laughs> truly believes the room is, like, commercial mainstream cinema. And, mm. and that, that's what's kind of fascinating about it is all these years later, like, he still holds his ground. Like, you know, we shot a, a rooftop scene in a parking lot with a green screen when there yeah. was, like, a rooftop, like, right there, you know, that we could have used. He's like, because we do first class Hollywood. We like to do green screens. So it's just a different mind. And I think that's how we get this entertainment is nobody would have allowed these movies to get made the way they are if they weren't calling the shots. So I guess it's, you know, it's a prop towards uh, originality if you want to look at it from in a positive way. <laughs> <laughs> so George, and this is almost the same for Greg, but I'll ask George first, when you show up on set and obviously it's, it's an Italian horror movie 
being made in Park City, Utah, and why wouldn't it be? When you show up there and see the 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 goblins, not the trolls, and like, dude, like these goblins are terrible. Like it's the worst. <laughs> like, Burlap like yeah. it's like it's like somebody like just it's not even they made paper mache faces or something. How do you still hold on as an actor and go like? This is the shits. Like you still got to try and make it good. Uh, I know. I, uh, I I did want to add one last thing. Claudio and Rosella. Now, you know. Now we're ten years out since we made Best Worst Movie, which was the challenge when we went over to Italy to film the documentary. We thought that you know they were embarrassed, but now they they know they're in on it and they love it. they love the fact that everybody loves it all over the world now. And they gotcha. love the fact that there's world fans everywhere. But yeah, you're right. So when we go on set and there's there's. Uh, burlap sacks and the you know and you just go oh my gosh that the ward the wardrobe here is it's uh it's hurting a little bit and the, you know we knew it was low budget and so we just went along we were just so innocent i mean it was 34 at the time and i you know i i don't know it's just uh <laughs> it's just i look back on the whole experience and i just uh it was a three-week shoot and you know we we're just trying to make a good film there in utah there's just there's a, uh, you know, they call Utah, Utah the beehive state, which they're busy as bees down there, you know. So uh, <laughs> everybody was busy as bees trying to make a, a really great movie. You know, we didn't care. We were just in a film. We were glad to be in a film, right? <laughs> that was your first one. I mean, absolutely. I can see that absolutely. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here's some of Greg's uh, favorite scenes from the room. But first, I want to say thank you to a brand new sponsor, Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive daily nutritional beverage I've ever tried. I've added Athletic Greens to my morning routine because it tastes great and it's very easy for me to get the nutrients I need every day. I put one scoop of Athletic Greens superfood powder into a glass of water, mix it up, drink it. And listen, it doesn't taste like grass or have a weird aftertaste. It's actually very, very tasty, very good. I was expecting to sort of hold my breath and gulp it down, but I didn't have to. I really enjoy drinking it. And with one glass, I get 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients. So I don't have to take multiple pills or vitamins or additional supplements. One scoop of Athletic Greens powder, one glass, and it's done. And Athletic Greens increases energy, helps with digestion, and most importantly, supports a healthy immune system. And right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system during the winter months. They're offering you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. You'll never have to buy vitamin D again, and your immune system will thank you. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash Jericho to order. That's athleticgreens.com slash Jericho. Join the health experts, athletes, Chris Jericho, and health-conscious go-getters around the world who are making the daily commitment to their health. Get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today at athleticgreens.com slash Jericho. That's athleticgreens.com slash Jericho. How was work today? Oh, pretty good. We got a new client at the bank. We make a lot of money. What client? I cannot tell you. It's confidential. Oh, come on. Why not? No, I can't. Anyway, how is your sex life? How about you, Greg? You mentioned the rooftop scene. There's so many classic moments, but when... You know, uh, Johnny comes out of the of the rooftop uh, staircase and he's yelling that he didn't beat the woman. He didn't beat the woman. And he just, oh, hi, Mark. Like, when you see this dialogue and you see it delivered, are you thinking, like, come on, dude? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I had this sort of advantage to have known Tommy for 
four years before we made this. So everybody on set thought this was a, a legit production. We were filming at Burns and Sawyer in Hollywood. And so their shock happened when we would show up four hours late to the set because Tommy would bring home the camera every day. So people would just sit around until we showed up. So we'd show up about four hours late and he would run in like, why isn't everything set up? Why are you wasting time? Uh, so every, everybody was just kind of like, dear, what is this going to be? And so when we shot that rooftop scene, I knew Tommy is like, Tommy's great when he's hosting Q and A's and he's free to kind of do his thing. But when you get him on a set, he's got to hit his mark, say a line, hit the next mark, look up. I knew it was going to be a problem. So we get in there and he's like, walking out of that like little shed and he's just, like he can't say the line and and do it properly and so i was just sitting there watching all this go down and just trying not to laugh because everybody like behind the scenes was like dude this has got to be a joke we're like mm -hmm. on take 20 and he hasn't even said the line properly and so that's when i kind of got up and gave him the water bottle i'm like hey you you know tommy what did you always tell me show emotion throw this water bottle he's like that's a great idea. My God. And everyone's like, wait, why is there a water bottle in there now? I'm like, just, just trust me. So he comes out, he nails it. And I'm sitting there watching this. We do my coverage. I start to laugh. So in the movie, you see me like picking my nose because I'm trying to cover my face from laughing. And then they put that in the movie, which is even, which is even better. But it was like combination of that. And then the se the sex scenes, of course, like, one of the big things Tommy was like, you know, this movie has to be American. And you know what? I really need to show my ass to sell this movie. And I thought it was like kind of a half joking thing. And he's like, no, I think, I think I would go for it. James Dean would do the same thing. And I was like, <laughs> you know what, Tommy, you're right. And sure enough, 10 minutes later, he's naked shooting this scene. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm an enabler. But I mean, he was kind of right. Like, those are the moments that people still talk about. And uh, I mean, uh, the crew was like in disbelief most of the time. But I think looking back now, it's sort of like a fun memory to look back and say, dude, I was part of like the biggest train wreck that <laughs> has ever taken place in Hollywood. George, how about you? What were some of the, you mentioned yeah. that the director couldn't speak English. So what were some of the directions that you got for your scenes? Oh, I know. Yeah. It, when you say train wreck, I think about how do you put lightning in a bottle twice? You know, that was our little thing that we said, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, oh, Claudio, uh, big like spider bite you, big like spider bite you, big, big spider bite you, spider bite you. That's all he can say. <laughs> he gets right in your face and spits on your face. You know, <laughs> because we had, we had no language. I mean, now because Claudio spoke a little English now, Claudio, is, is, I can call Claudio on the phone and we have a nice conversation of which we've tried to make Troll 2 Part 2. If we could, uh, Return of the, uh, Return of the, bologna burger or something like that is what we want to do i think i own a, a burger factory or something a manufacturing a burger factory which is what they they give a bologna sandwich to the goblins if you remember at the end and and they that's and, what kills them yeah like yeah i like the wizard of oz the witch you know oh my god that's such a great scene but yeah all of it you know it's just it's just the way it was all pulled together and like Greg having all these, I mean, I didn't know film like Greg at all. I was just in there just saying, Oh, what do I do? Yeah. I'll do whatever you say. I'm in a movie, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. But the costumes, the costume design, I think Laura Gimsler was their costume design lady that she's a pretty famous, uh, actress over in Italy. And, uh, yeah, there's, uh, 
just I can remember, you know, just the language barrier was the main thing, which, you know, um, Rosella, who wrote who wrote the script, they're both absolutely lovely people. And I've been in Rome two times now to meet with them and uh, have dinner with them and all. And she doesn't speak any English. She understands but does not speak in English. But Claudio and I now have a nice conversation, and he would love to do do something again. You know, he's he's met, they've made about forty or fifty movies now in, in Italy. I think wow. they're pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you talk about Tommy Gray, there's always kind of some controversy as to a where he's really from, and b where he got the money to to spend on on the room. Because you mentioned there's all of these like filming in digital and film is is ridiculous. I mean, not to mention <laughs> super expensive. That's two camera crews and you know, all that sort of stuff. D- did you ever know anything about that? Or is it stuff that he kept very close to his vest? Yeah, I mean, we talked a lot. I did, I did a lot of research when I was writing The Disaster Artist. It was almost like kind of trying to solve the Zodiac case. Yeah. I mean, w- one of the things that was fascinating to me is he put a billboard up in Hollywood yeah. for five years. And that was just insane to me that like, you know, that's like Tom Cruise still promoting like Vanilla Sky. But, (laughs) um, but I, you know, he was a really successful retail guy back in the, in the 80s, I think, uh, which he had told me about. Um, And then he was just saying, you know, you know, I I get tired of retail. Now I want to do movie. Uh, And he just, their money was no option. I mean, we shot that Chris R scene, the drug dealer scene in a like an enclosed alley set. And he watched the dailies and he's like, it's not traumatic. We need to reshoot on roof. And so we shot three weeks that scene, just like an alternate version. Um, so I, I feel like with Tommy, the more I've looked into it, it, it's always like blind alleys. You find a little bit of truth and then it's like, you have no idea where that goes. So I feel like he's, a, he's such an interesting mystery that He's sort of not meant to be solved. And I think that's what kind of adds fun to the room is wondering who is this guy? Where's he from? Where's he really from besides New Orleans? And, and where did he make his money? It's sort of, it's sort of like the mystery is, a, a, is the fun part of the room. And so I kind of gave up trying to solve the whole thing and just accepted, you know, he's a 30-year-old guy. He's from New Orleans. And he's just really good at designing jeans. And, um, <laughs> and, that, and that's that. Travis, when you hear all these different stories about uh, what, what George and Greg are talking about as a producer, uh, how do you uh, not do this uh, when you're making a movie like Sist? Um, it's kind of hard, but with, I mean, with any smaller budget picture or independent movie, um, there's a lot of things that go wrong on a movie set. And, you know, sure enough, that did happen on Sist. But I think the biggest thing that really worked on our end for Sist is everyone that was on the cast and crew, all of us had already worked together. We were already friends. So you create this like family environment. And I think that protects us a little bit from having these experiences like, you know, George did in Troll 2 and Greg did in the room. So I think it's, it's a lot of times it's the people you surround yourself with. But, you know, everyone, like I said, everyone was like a family. And yeah, you know, you have your little hiccups here and there, but overall it was a very, very pleasant experience. And you kind of have to have that. I mean, you mentioned a little bit of that, George, when you guys were filming, you know, and you're in Park City and it's, it's a fairly big cast, but did you get pretty close to everybody uh, while you were filming uh, Troll 2? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which was really kind of nice because, okay, you've got to imagine that I'm, I'm away. I've moved back to Alabama, started to practice. 
So when Best Worst Movie was made, the documentary, I took on the great task of being the social chairman, meaning the intent was to go back and interview all the cast members, which was very difficult. Several of them didn't want to have anything to do with any kind of documentary made around a really bad movie. They were still embarrassed from it. And until the, you know, we got them into New York, we had about nine cast members in New York City, I think. And that's when we, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater did a screening. It was really the first big screening, as you saw in the Best First Movie, the documentary. I think 300 people came that night from all over. I think even from Hawaii and South Carolina to see to see this incredible, you know, thing happen on screen. You know, much like the room. You know, it's just it's like Greg talks about in the audience to be sitting in the audience. He and I have done it so many times together, and just be able to be a part of it. You know, of, of the enjoyment. It's almost as if I'm sure for Greg, I'm not. Uh, sometimes I don't when I'm. When I watch The Room, or I mean, when I watch when I watch Troll Two, or really any of the films that I'm in, but when I watch Troll Two, especially, I for, I forget it's me. So I'm I'm in there having a blast with everybody else, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems kind of a different thing because because George, you're talking about about um, Troll being made in Park City on a low yeah. budget, and Greg, you're talking about you guys are filming this in L.A. where budget's no concern. Does it have the same family atmosphere or is it more just people getting in and getting out and, and, and getting their paychecks? I think with the room you had, we went through like four crews. Uh, the people would just not stop quitting. And so I think a lot of the first crew expected something professional and they saw they were getting madness. So I think they, you know, collected their paycheck and got out. And by the time we got to the fourth crew, it was like a smaller indie team that knew what they were making and was able to get through it but i think i mean the room was such a surprise like each day you didn't know what you were going to get you know you'd have a different crew and tommy would fire cast members and then people started replacing each other so it was just a circus on the room and i i don't think the crew had any hopes for it it's not like they were putting their heart in i think mm -hmm. really the only person that was really going for it that saw this all the way through was tommy and I think that really shows, you know, obviously in the end, in the end product. <laughs> All right. So The Room and Troll 2 really become uh, well-known sort of cultish films, thanks to their respective documentaries, which also made George pretty famous as well. I want to talk about that. But before we do, I need to talk about another documentary making waves these days. It's Diamond Dallas Page's new documentary, Relentless. It's available for free on Amazon Prime. We're going to be talking to DDP next week about the documentary. I'm in it as well but it's about the inspiring story of how ddp created his life-changing ddp yoga program and the uh, ups and downs he went through to get it up and running this is very interesting uh, you guys know what ddpy has done for me i've been talking about it for almost a decade now and you know that i do it anywhere and everywhere i can uh, backstage at aw backstage at fozzy gigs and hotel rooms my own living room even my front yard it's a killer workout that you can do at your place as well at your own pace it's good for any age any skill level and Diamond Dallas Page is so sure you'll love his DDPY program that you're going to get 20% off the DDPY app when you sign up for a free seven-day trial. Just download the DDPY app and get started. You'll get access to hundreds of workouts, live workouts from the DDPY Performance Center in Smyrna, Georgia, where we filmed the Judas video, uh, almost at uh, 46 million views now. Wow, that's crazy. And you'll get some personal motivation from DDP himself. You can even connect a Bluetooth heart monitor to keep track of your workout data. You can stream the app to your TV so you can do the workouts on your big screen. 
So download the DDPY app today. You can get it for iOS or Android. I've got it on my phone. Then go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho to sign up for seven days of free access to the DDPY app and to take advantage of 20% off the DDPY app, all right? So you get seven days for free and 20% off the app right now at ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. That's ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. And then watch the inspiring story about how Dallas created the DDPY program in the new documentary, Relentless, available for free right now on Amazon Prime. Like I said, we're going to be talking to DDP next week about this documentary and about DDPY. Let Dallas and DDPY change your life. Like, yes, for thousands and thousands of people, get on the path to healthy living and stay there. Start today at ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. That's ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. And while you're checking out Relentless, when you're finished, don't forget to check out I'm Too Old for This Shit, also available on iTunes and Amazon, the documentary that I produced about the heavy metal band Siren, who broke up and 30 years later, after not playing their instruments for three decades, get a chance to reform their band and play at one of Germany's biggest heavy metal festivals. Uh, It's a heartwarming documentary, a funny documentary, and it just proves that you can live your dreams no matter how old you are. Never give up on your dreams. Do you see this writing? Do you know what it means? Hospitality. And you can't piss on hospitality. I won't allow it. What are you going to do to me, Daddy? Tighten my belt by one loop so I don't feel hunger pains. And your sister and mother will have to do likewise. Okay, Joshua, you want to get rough with me? You want to show me that you don't like the choice of this house for our vacation by going on a hunger strike? Well, I'll accept the challenge. But just remember, when I was your age, I really did suffer from hunger. We'll see who gets through this. But just remember, I've got more practice than you. I'll see you tomorrow. When you guys, like, like you mentioned, especially in George's case, it's a great part in, in, in Best Worst Movie where uh, Troll be- starts becoming more well-known. And now George Hardy, the, the dentist who made this weird movie 20 years ago, is now kind of a celebrity. Uh, how was that for you as a person? How was it for your family? Did it affect you at all? Well, yeah, I mean, to this day, I have I have patients that come in that, that want, you know, the dad from, from Troll 2 to clean, clean their teeth, you know, look at their teeth. So <laughs> I've had people flying from Minneapolis. I've got a dentist that was a huge fan, and he flew down, had his teeth cleaned in my dental office. I remember that. And pharmacists came in from Nashville. And, yeah, so – you know, that people locate me because of, you know, they know I've got a dental practice, I guess, from the documentary and all that. So, yeah, but, but as far as being recognized, it's kind of surreal probably for Greg and myself. I, you know, I can remember going to a lot of the screenings and, you know, you, you go in and watch these people kind of adore you. And then, and then you walk out in the street, you walk on the street, nobody knows who you are, you know, mm-hmm. you just, and so not that it, not that it, played any part with my ego at all you know uh i guess philosophically for myself it's it's not that i needed to make any adjustments with it but it was a part of really accepting the what is about what happened and you know uh for me uh, you know the, my emotional part of it for me chris more than anything would just be i mean deborah reed who plays the witch in troll 2 she says to me uh she says, well, if you can't be in the best movie ever, why not be in one of the worst? And really, she's really right. And so this is kind of a miracle that, we, you know, Greg and I both, I mean, there's how many, there's probably been 100 million movies made and both of us are recognized from being in that. But out on the streets, no, every so often, I'll, you know, people hear my southern accent or voice a little bit from, 
from the movie or, you know, and, and then now with the white hair and all, I, I still, you know, people do recognize me here and there. And we were, we were opened up. The best worst movie was, uh, is sidewalk film festival is opening film in Birmingham. So a lot of times when I go to Birmingham, people, people recognize who I am, but how about for you, Greg, is it, what, what happens to you when you walk out on the street? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the whole reason that I had a, a beard in the room was that if, if this movie ever came out, I, nobody would recognize me. So that was, I was planning way ahead. Uh, but no, I think ever since the disasters came out with how much, you know, how well, well received that film was and how much publicity I started to get, you know, a lot recognized a lot more like in, and in very random ways. Like I was in Norway. I just got off a red eye flight and I was walking in the almost empty airport. And this guy comes up from behind me and he goes, so anyway, how's your sex life? <laughs> and I look at him and I'm like, wait, what? He's like, oh yeah, he's Norwegian. He's like, all my, all my friends go up and we, you know, in the winter time, we go up to this cabin and watch the room and get high. And I just thought, <laughs> man, that's, uh, that's great, man. I'm happy. I'm happy to see that it's made it all the way to Norway. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's one of those, one of those movies that when people get it, they really get it. And it's got sort of a viral feel to it. You want to show your friends and get that shock value. So it is, you know, it's in- 2003 and the disaster artists, obviously it spread a lot. So, um, you know, you run into it. But you only had a beard for half that movie. I know. (laughs) (laughs) It disappeared. (laughs) Yeah, I tried to keep it the whole time. And Tommy was just like, look, we we need you need to shave beard. You look more American, all American guy, tuxedo. You have to do it. And at the time, I had this girlfriend who hated the beard and we were kind of, you know, weren't really doing well. And I thought, all right, I'll shave and that'll help the relationship. It didn't help the relationship and it got rid of my disguise. So, But, uh, <laughs> but you never actually had a scene in the movie shaving it. I know, I know. I, he, he made me go into the, the bathroom, the real bathroom in, in, the, in the building and, and he recorded my shaving, like trimming and shaving. And he's like directing it saying, don't cut your face, be careful. So we have that on beat. Yes, but uh, <laughs> I just show up unshaven, unannounced. It's uh, pretty great. So tell us a little bit about Sist and, and uh, when did you make this movie? Um, when is it being released and, and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, so we uh, we actually started pre-production right around the same time last year. So like mid to late September, uh, we ended up shooting in Baltimore in December. We did a three-week shoot. And, you know, it just finished the final version last month. And next month, we will actually be premiering in a bunch of places in the UK, uh, a couple of film festivals. And then we actually have the theatrical booking in Australia because they still, you know, they have theaters that you're allowed to actually go in right now. Um, But yeah, besides that, lots of just popping up. We're going to try and do some drive-ins because those are really thriving again right now. And yeah, I mean, Cyst is a, you know, it's a 1960s throwback where a doctor invents a cyst removal machine and in typical horror fashion, it backfires on him and he inadvertently creates a cyst monster. So, you know, fans of stuff from the, you know, the original Blob to the Blob remake in the 80s, all the way to Reanimator. And then more recently, we've had a few people view the film and almost unanimous have basically referenced that it reminds them of Little Shop of Horrors, which I had never seen before, so I had to watch it. And then, you know, yeah, it's kind of crazy because Steve Martin's character is actually a dentist. 
So the connections there were kind of uncanny, but yeah, it's, it's a cool mix of all these movies, you know, even, you know, hints of twilight zone. So it's just a good old school, fun horror movie. And George really steals the show with some of his lines. I mean, I think there's lines in cyst that are going to, you know, overshadow some of the things that he says in troll too. So that's very (laughs) exciting for all of us. George, what was the big differences between shooting cyst and shooting troll too? Oh, well, I mean, you're looking at 30 years, of course, but uh, (laughs) like, yeah. Things were a lot more organized and put together. The, the, really, the very talented Tyler Russell wrote and directed the movie. And I've worked with Tyler before. We, I met Tyler, uh, first of all, when we filmed in Mobile, Alabama. He asked me to come down and shoot with uh, Here Comes Rusty. Uh, it was a film on the Greyhound racetracks. And, uh, it, it, um, oh, gosh, Travis, help me out with who's in there. Fred uh, yeah, we've got... Bruce Bruce Hampton Hampton and actually Chris, uh, one of your previous guests, Mark Burchard actually is in here. Comes Rusty. Yeah. Yeah, Mark Burchard for sure. And then, then we went on to, to do uh, Texas cotton of which we did the short, which I did with Mark Burchard. And and also one of your big fans is, is uh, Judd Lorman. Who's on seal team, by the way, we, we did a short before we did Texas cotton. And so Judd, I got to meet Judd, who uh, is in Texas Cotton with me, and uh, he he's, uh, plays Blackman on a SEAL team and big professional wrestling fan. But mm. anyway, he wants to be on your show one of these days. You'll have to get Blackman on. <laughs> Only the but biggest anyway. stars, man. Only the biggest stars get to be on my show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's getting up there. But, you know, fast forward to Sist, uh, you know, Tyler – Tyler really is, he's just got such a creative mind. I think from what I understand, when he was 11 to 15 or whatever, he just played video games all the time. So a lot of the film, you feel like you're watching a video, a really true, you know, live video game really on screen mm. with, with Sis kind of. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Greg? What are, what are some of the big differences between filming room and filming Sis? I think it was obviously, you know, organization, that's kind of a given. Yeah. But I just think how, how much fun we had. It was everyone worked really hard, but everyone knew what they were doing. And um, I, I even did Tyler even threw it to me. He's like, Hey, you want to direct, try directing this scene? And I'm like, Hey, man, I get a chance to direct George. But yeah, it was just, it was just a really fun experience. And I think it shows in the movie because I'm a huge horror fan. That's one of my probably my favorite genre. And I just come off directing my first horror film. So I was in that horror mindset when I showed up there. Just the way they captured like the 60s period was was really smart. And um, it was just, yeah. I mean, I think when you make a movie, it's going to be stressful. It's good. There's going to be a lot going on, probably a lot going wrong. But at the end of the day, you want to just be having fun. And that's what I think with Sis. We all had a great time. Yeah. Okay. Before we wrap things up, I want to talk about The Disaster Artist, which is uh, the story about The Room starring James Franco. We'll get to that after. But I want to say thanks to another new sponsor, NetSuite. If you're a business partner, you know that running a business is tough, but you might be making it harder on yourself than you have to. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. Stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information you need when you need it. Ditch the spreadsheets and the old software that you've all we've all outgrown it. So you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. It's everything you need all in one place instantaneously. 
Whether you'd be doing one million or hundreds of millions in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Join the over 24,000 companies using NetSuite right now. Let NetSuite show you how they will benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com slash Jericho. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash Jericho. That's netsuite.com slash Jericho. Go check it out now. All right, Greg, I didn't realize that you wrote the book, The Disaster Artist. Did James Franco and Seth Rogen buy the rights from you, or how did that movie get made? Because it was a great one. Yeah, I uh, so the book came out, and James Franco and Seth Rogen were making the interview at the time up in Vancouver, and, and so a producer had given James the book. He had never seen The Room before, and he just started reading the book and thought, dude, this is the craziest Hollywood story I've ever heard of. Is this even real? Sure enough, The Room was playing like that week in Vancouver and I was there doing a book signing. And so James came to see The Room for the first time, having read the book and we talked and he's like, I really, I really want to make this. I really want my brother to play you. And we got, we had a conference call with Tommy and I was like really nervous because I had no idea what he was going to think of this. And he's like, you know, so who play me, James? And I'm like, oh, dear God. He's like, I think Johnny Johnny Depp is good idea. And so <laughs> James kind of laughs. And, and Tommy's like, why you laugh? It was so funny. He's like, oh, I don't know. He's like, you know, it's the biggest movie star in the world. He's in Pirates of the Caribbean. And Tommy's like, so what? You don't know. You don't try. Why don't you go this direction? And I'm like, what about if James plays you, Tommy? And Tommy's like, that's okay. That's a good idea. Maybe, you know, I've seen some of your movies, James. Some good movies, some bad movies. And so... <laughs> So we had this, this the craziest conference call. And then, um, you know, James said, I've, I've read a lot of books and this is the movie I want to make. And Seth Rogen's <laughs> going to produce it and we're going to put together a great film. And, and, and James was true to his word. And a few years later, you know, they ended up making it. But I thought it was even better that James had come to the story through the book rather than having seen the room. Because I think, you know, to make the disaster artist, you really need to tell a universal story about, you know, friendship rather than kind of making a movie about a making of a bad movie. So I thought they, they did a great job handling adapting the book. It really is. It, it, it's been a, a year or two since I've seen the disasters, but there's a really great scene near the beginning where, where Tommy shows up to pick you up and you're in the front yard, just hanging out in the suburbs. And it's just <laughs> a really cool, like he wants to be your friend so bad. He's going to, whatever he came, he's coming to pick you up or get in the car or whatever he said. It was, it was just really, that, that was really painted really well. Yeah, it was, you know, when I first met Tommy, I mean, we, we went out, we were, he's like, I need to eat. If not, I get cranky when I don't eat. And so we got, anyway, we go have lunch, the whole thing's kind of weird. And then we really connect when we went to the park to play football. I mean, I know that sounds really weird. We were supposed to be meeting to be like rehearsing for our acting class, but we end up playing football in a park. And that's where I kind of really got to see the human (laughs) side of him where he's like, you know, you can, you can be big actor if you just, you know, believe in yourself. And I'm like, this is so bizarre that this dude is like actually giving me inspirational advice, you know, cause I just gone out for a bunch of roles and not gotten them. And he was the one person who made me feel better. Ironically, when he was the guy in acting class that everyone saw as sort of like the villain. And it was just strange that we bonded over football. So goes to show in acting classes, you might not learn how to act, but you might, you know, get cool experiences. Well, you, there's definitely a lot of football in the room. There's like 18,000 passes at all times <laughs> with the ball. Where is Tommy now? Is, did he ever make another movie? What is he doing? Yeah, I mean, we still talk quite a bit. I mean, he'll check in with me. He's doing his retail 
business. Um, I, a few years ago, I actually wrote a script for Tommy for him to play like a mortician vampire. And, and I called it Best Friends because I thought, hey, nobody's really given Tommy a chance to be an actor in a role that fits him. So we went out and made these movies, Best Friends, Volume 1 and Volume 2, and they're completely insane. And that really got him excited. And now he wants to make a new movie called Big Shark about a shark that attacks New Orleans. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just called, it's called Big Shark? Big Shark, yeah. Right. I mean, Big Shark. Uh, he's great with titles, the room, even though it has nothing to do with the room. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but he's, you know, he's, he's still, that's where he's at is big shark. He thinks, you know, make big entertainment action movie. So, man, I, you mentioned that billboard earlier. I drove past that billboard probably 50 times, like you said, over the course of three or four years. And I was like, can hell man, when are they going to take <laughs> this thing down? It just, it's, it's always there, but it's not playing anywhere. It's just there at all times. Oh you know? yeah. Only in theaters, and then it has it had his number on it. It's like RSVP, so you call it and you'd get the answering machine, and it'd be like him disguising his voice and say RSVP for this movie. I think a lot of people just thought it was like for a cult, you know, like uh, right. you know, call this and join this cult. But yeah, five years is is unprecedented. It kind of is a cult, though, you know, the cult of the room. It is. Just starting to wind down here, George. You mentioned the best worst movie. We talked about that a lot. How did you guys get that made? Um, because it was, it was very successful, much more successful than troll two, I would think. <laughs> yeah. I know what it got. I think 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. Yeah. We filmed that, uh, of course, over, over a course of three years and it was organic with friends and family putting it together and we filmed it in 28 cities in eight countries. Hmm. So we, we filmed, we went to, um, Austria and found troll two fans in Austria. We went to Paris and London and Birmingham, England and, as you see in the film, we went all over, and then then we went and we 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 filmed screenings of Troll Two, and the reaction, like you know, you see with uh, the room and you know the, just people that adore it. But what's really interesting, more than anything, is what I have found is people that love bad movies, and you know, I, and I have found that you know there, you've read articles about people. You know, you, you wonder what kind of people are attracted to really bad movies, and I have found some really amazing people in my in the audiences that have written pet books. Uh, um, Mrs. Renfro's sauce of the world's largest sauce, of the CEO of that, the huge fans. Uh, there's a lot of people that are of high intelligence just come in and <laughs> love these films. They love talking to me like you. You know, just love love laughing at something, and I think that the world needs, uh, especially like now. You know, we need laughter in our lives, and you know, and I just, uh, just we, you know, we're not, we're laughing, not, we don't feel being laughed at. We, we, we laugh with. You know, I think Greg and I both do now. You know, <laughs> well, it's great when you see the the description for Troll Two, and it's built as like a a, a comedy horror or dark comedy. I'm like bullshit. It was not supposed <laughs> to be a dark comedy. They're just saying that now. Yeah. But, right. But yeah. you can respect the fact that like, I always like when you're talking about Tommy, you're talking about Claudio. I always like put myself in the shoes of, of the artists as we're all artists here. And it's like, these guys had the best of intentions. Like you said, it's going to be citizen Kane. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be Halloween. It's going to be the greatest movie. And then when it doesn't turn out that way, I understand why that would bother them at first. But then when you embrace it, like you said, you've created a piece of cinematic history, even though you wanted it to go this way, it's still very important to, yeah. to, to thousands and maybe even hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Yeah, and that's what Claudio's point that he makes in Best Worst Movie, that it is art. Whether you like it or love it, it's still art, you know. 
Right. You know that as a physician. When uh, have you seen the room, George? Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yes. Yeah, been a while, but yeah, and the disaster artist and read the book. Yeah. Have you seen Troll Two, Greg? I've seen scenes of it, but I gotcha. saw the documentary, which I felt like you said earlier. That almost gives you the best of it all. You know, is seeing yeah. that doc- seeing best worst movie. But I have watched scenes of of Troll Two. And like you said, when you see Best Worst Movie, I think that's that's the most of Troll that you need to see because it's got all the highlights in there. It does. As we start to wind out, last two questions. What is your favorite scene from from your movie, whether it's Troll 2 or whether it's The Room? And, and I'll start. Obviously, to me, the the the, the scene where, where the kid, um, you can't eat the food because if you eat this food, you're going to turn into a plant. Uh, and then the kid needs to save his family, so he does what anybody else would do rather than just sweeping the food off the table he gets up and pees on it he pisses on it and yeah. then angry father george's character picks up the kid takes him upstairs throws him on the bed says you can't piss on hospitality then gives a big speech about being hungry as a child hungry. hunger pains right good for you <laughs> i've got more experience than you do in being hungry and starving and it's like what's going on here exactly you know and that was a big Mystery to me is I, I really wanted to meet uh, Rosella because Rosella wrote the script. And I thought, Rosella, please tell me, where, how did you come up with this idea? How did you come up with these ideas? The languaging, everything. And so when what was true is that when, we, when they translated it from Italian to English, it went straight Italian English, like almost Google right now yeah. tr- translating. But, you know, <laughs> do it like this. Do the line like this, like this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't any American translation. It was just do it as it was supposed to be written. What, uh, what What's your favorite scene from Troll 2, George? Or your favorite part? Oh, gosh. It, it, was, it might surprise you I, because for me, it was it was my experience that I had. And I'm coming down uh, the, the steps. And and, I, and for me, I just laugh at it because we did that take like, like Greg said, about 20 times we did that. And I, I was still early in the morning. I walked down the steps. And I'm buttoning my shirt up, and I go, it's breakfast-ready deer. And everybody knows just about every line of Troll 2. And I go, it's breakfast, F-I-R-S-T, it's breakfast-ready deer. And I just laugh at that every time I hear it because I remember trying to do I never could say the line, you know. <laughs> well, you got that Alabama accent kind of too, right? Exactly, breakfast. yeah, this drawl, you know, whatever you want to call it down here, you know. I also love the, uh, the, the subtle name of the town is Nilbog. Which, of yeah. course, is Goblin Bowers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, when you talk about the room, uh, you, you briefly mentioned it where where uh, Tommy sits down and says, I don't even remember what the line is before. Like, oh, I'll have a, a, a ham sandwich. How's your sex life, Greg? <laughs> like, out of nowhere, I'll let you expand about that. But my favorite scene is when he comes into the floral shop and the lady goes, uh, oh, Johnny, I didn't, I didn't recognize you. And it's like, Why? It's How many only... vampires shop here? <laughs> <laughs> Goth vampire with long hair. He's not wearing a mask. He doesn't have a ponytail. He didn't grow a beard. It's like, it's him. It's so obvious it's him. <laughs> what's your favorite scene, Greg? I, what's amazing about those scenes is we weren't even supposed to film those. It was like we'd wrapped in L.A. and it felt like Tommy didn't want the movie to end. So he's like, we, we need to go to San Francisco and shoot scene about Johnny Mark. Talk about love. Johnny buy flower for Lisa. I'm like, come on, dude, we don't need those. So that was the last scene we ever shot for the room was the flower shop scene. And and, and I was in a at a live screening and it was packed. And everyone was yelling throughout the entire movie. And when that scene was about to come on, 
everybody in the audience went shh and they all went quiet so they could actually like hear it and listen to it. <laughs> and that's when I thought, okay, there's gotta be something special about that scene. If it, I mean, I, when I, we were filming it, I didn't think anything of it. We had the makeup artist. It's like the only extra. And we showed up to this flower shop and Tommy's pitch was, Hey, you know, if we buy flowers, will you, will, will you let us film movie? Will you play yourself? So literally <laughs> we just showed up at a flower <laughs> shop and shot that scene. Uh, it goes to show making movies. Hey, it's not really that hard, but I think probably my favorite scene of the room that I think kind of encapsulates the entire madness is the drug dealer scene because you got a guy up there playing basketball with no hoop drug dealer shows up we have no idea why he's there and he just says i don't have five minutes where's my money where's my money then randomly tommy and i magically appear on the rooftop and it's sunny behind us but it's cloudy every other angle <laughs> and we come out we disarm this drug dealer who's armed and clearly would throw both of us off the roof with like one arm <laughs> and then the the Lisa and her mom appear magically also at the door and then we carry this guy to the police station 30 seconds later we're back like everything's taken care of and it's just like it's sort of like a bad after school special about not taking drugs <laughs> right. but it's just I it just you show that scene to somebody and their face is just you can just see the questions turning and they're like okay I need to know how this got made and I think <laughs> I think probably the Chris R scene is, is one that I, uh, I always enjoy watching with the crowd. Another good one is Lisa's mom out of nowhere where she's like, yeah, I got my test back. I have breast cancer. Anyways, they just drop this <laughs> huge plot point and then just move on and never mention it again. Yeah. And Tommy's thing was, you know, people have cancer. They don't like to talk about it. I'm like, <laughs> he's got a point. <laughs> they like to mention it, but they don't like to talk about it. I'll tell you what, man, my, my, one of my best friends and I, for, for, for weeks and months, even now, one of our favorite quotes, going to make a movie, Greg. We're going to make a movie, Greg, <laughs> from Disaster Artist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, that's still happening today. I see still it's like, okay, we need to make Big Shark. People need it. So hey, not much has changed 20 years later. <laughs> How about you, Travis? Which movie do you uh, like better, The Room or Troll 2? Uh, so it's a tough one. So I guess there's two different answers. I'll say The Room, if it's an interactive screening in a sold-out theater, just because, you know, a lot of theaters do it differently, but usually it has kind of like what you said with like a Rocky Horror effect where it'll have cues for, okay, now you throw a football or now you throw a – anytime you see like a spoon, you throw a spoon. But I think my favorite thing about that is because there's so many, you know, transitions, transition shots of San Francisco – and the cue for that in the theater is, meanwhile, in San Francisco. So, like, I think interactive room experience is great. However, I've probably seen, since I've actually watched it for the first time, uh, I've probably seen Troll 2 more. Just because it slightly borderlines being a horror film, although it's, you know, it's really not. But, yeah, I got to say that, you know, Troll 2 is my favorite. And one of my favorite lines that George says is, the daughter, you know, sees grandpa Seth in the mirror and George comes in. And he's like, have you been smoking dope again? And it's just like, to me, it's just the funniest to hear George say that. And after knowing him, it's one of the funniest things that like you could ever imagine. Especially again. Like she's, yeah. she's smoking again. dope all yeah. the time. Right. <laughs> so, so when does uh, Sist come out, Travis? And when can we find it? Yeah. So Sist, uh, we're going to do a theatrical probably next month as well as some festivals. 
you know, hopefully I would say within, you know, hopefully before 2020 is over, if not early 2021. Um, but yeah, no, it'll be streaming, DVD, Blu-ray, all that stuff. And then, yeah, we're hoping to make Sis 2. So hopefully that happens as well. You got to make Sis 2, but there's no cysts in the actual uh, sequel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, that's the appropriate thing to do. <laughs> Last question for George and Greg. Why do you think your respective movies have translated so well? And here they are 20, 30 years later and people still getting together for, for screenings. And, and you know, you guys, you guys' careers have, have blossomed because of these movies. What do you think it is about The Room, Greg, that people like so much? I think it's just, it's so unfiltered. It's made by a man who sees the world in a completely different way. And it's sort of relatable to see this person shoot for the stars and end up like as something that's so bad that it's, you know, you, you can see the passion that's put in it. And I think all of us realize, hey, we all have dreams and this guy went for it and made something that is like very human and so different. I mean, nobody would have okayed any of these choices that he made to, to, to do the room. And I think it's just refreshing to go in and watch this movie and see it for, for all that it's worth. And I think there's just something about it when it comes to movie making, certain movies just have a quotable rewatchability and, and it's just, I mean, it's, it's seeing Tommy, you, nobody would ever cast Tommy in a film and, and it's just getting to see something so raw and unique that I think people just enjoy getting that laugh with their friends and, and that shock value. Well, well said. How about you, George? Why does Troll 2 still resonate? I think, I think it just delivers. Troll 2 just simply delivers scene to scene. You, know, you just go, uh, for the most part, you, when, when you watch it, you just go, did that just happen? That didn't just really happen. You know, like you said, the pissing on the table or, you know, then you go from this scene to that scene to the, the next scene. And you just go, that, that you've got to be kidding me. And it's just, I think it's, it's so, like I said, it's their belly, belly ache laughing. And I think that's what the whole world needs now. And it's, that, that's why these movies stay with people. I, I wanted to ask you before we get off real quick, uh, what what do you have a favorite? Do you have a favorite really bad movie? You know, is, what, what about you? Is, if you? I know there's a lot, but do you have a- these are two of them, man. I mean, and I'm, I'm not wow. just saying it's, and they have been for years. But I, yeah, I'm, I, 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 there's a lot of bad yeah. movies, especially when you're a horror movie yeah. fan. Um, there's something you know, Sleepaway Camp movies. All three of those are are, are pretty bad, especially Sleepaway Camp three. Um, you know, I think a couple of of, of the Hatchet movies with Victor Crowley are, are pretty bad. But yeah. those movies are just bad. Like they just don't click. There's something about this. But these movies are bad in a different way because, like you said, they're there's a movie called Things that I just did for Last Drive-In with Joe Bob Briggs. That's literally bad. It's the shits. No one should ever watch it. The master should they should take a hammer to it and destroy it. You know, L- London After Midnight with Lon Chaney from 1939 has disappeared forever. Things needs to follow it. <laughs> These movies are not that type of movie. Like you said, you can watch these and appreciate the artistry, but and also laugh at just the ridiculousness of it as well. And that's why it's so cool to have you guys here today and to be able to talk about this. And uh, uh, and I'm excited to see you working together. It's a dream team, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot, guys. And, and we'll uh, be sure to check out Sis when it comes out. And George, I think your Tesla is uh, probably charged by now. It is. Yeah, yeah, two hundred. Thank you guys. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Can I help you? Yeah, can I have a dozen red roses, please? 
Oh, hi, Johnny. I didn't know it was you. Here you go. That's me. How much is it? It'll be $18. Here you go. Keep the change. Hi, doggy. You're my favorite customer. Thanks a lot. Bye.